Amen. Thank you, Casey. Praise team for leading us today in our singing. What a prayer. Let's make that our prayer. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings in chapter 1, if you will. 1 Kings in chapter 1. It's on page 445 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps you or not. Transitions are part of life. They're part of life. I want you to think about the various transitions. Some of you are looking at page 445. Don't do it. It's not the same Bible, okay? (laughs) I want you to think about the transitions that you've experienced in life. How have they gone? What have they been? Some in this room started middle school this year. And you adjusted to a schedule that changes throughout the day, having to find your classes. Some of you recently started driving, like maybe a few days ago even, and now you are not so dependent on your parents, but you have a little more independence and you can get yourself to various places. Parents, some of your kids recently started driving or will soon start driving, and that means you have to make an adjustment in your budget, right, to cover those added insurance expenses. Some of you recently transitioned into college or into a new job or into marriage or into a new house or a first house or perhaps even uh, a first child. And there are transitions and struggles that go along with all those things. There are joys and all sorts of things that go along with that. Some of you have transitioned into retirement. Here's the truth. Some transitions in life are easier than other transitions that we face. Some of us in this room have recently lost a spouse and been forced to make a difficult transition in life. For others, circumstances have changed such that you have to transition into a retirement home or into a nursing home or you have parents who have had to make that transition. Some transitions uh, include losing a driver's license, not being able to drive anymore, and that's a difficult Some of you in this room need to make that transition. You know who you are. (laughs) Here's the point. Transitions are inevitable. They are an inevitable part of life. In our text today, we're going to see a major transition. A transition to a new king. King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, apart from Jesus, of course, is dying and one of his sons will take the throne and we're going to see this transition as we close our study in first and second samuel which we've been in for the whole year we find ourselves in first kings chapter one and two this morning and we're going to see this transition in kingship but even though we see david will pass god's promises endure They don't depend on David. They don't depend on any earthly person. They depend on God's faithfulness. They depend on God's goodness. They depend on Jesus Christ. So please stand as we read in 1 Kings. We'll read the first 10 verses as we begin. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. 
Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 to run before, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehodia, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty man, or Solomon, his brother. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look to this text today, we're asking that you would speak to us. We're trusting that your spirit will move in this place and move in our own lives that we might see your faithfulness. Lord, things change, but you remain the same. And your promise endures forever. As we look to various principles from this text, Lord, help us to learn and to apply and to grow in Christ's likeness because of the power of your spirit who transforms us. We trust you and we ask you to move even now. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, 1 Kings begins with a picture of David that is not very flattering. He's weak and he's frail, and he's feeble, and it's obvious. David had been 30 years old when he began to reign, and he served as king for nearly, seven, nearly 40 years. So we understand at this point he was about 70 or 71 years old. He's struggling. He can't regulate his own body temperature and he seems nearly bedridden. So his servants devise this plan, right? The, the blankets and the clothing won't keep him warm, so we need to find another person to come and to just lay with him to keep him warm. So there's been a lot of commentary written on this verse or this passage or this idea of Abishag and who she was, but I see her kind of like as a primitive hospice nurse. She was just there to care for David. She was just there to attend to his needs and to keep him warm if she could. Now listen, this is a stark contrast to the David that we've been reading about throughout these two chapters of Samuel, isn't it? He was a handsome and a ruddy young man. And he was a mighty warrior and he was led by the spirit and he was powerful. But the years had been tough on David. He had a lot of trials and a lot of struggles. And frankly, some of those struggles he brought on himself because of his own sin. But at this point, David is a shell of his former 
self. And while this insight into where David was is interesting, I don't think it's there just so that it will elicit sympathy for David. No, I think it's there setting up the situation with Adonijah, his son. What was Adonijah doing? How was he positioning himself? And why was he able to do that? Friends, it's because of the situation that David finds himself in. And the first principle that we need to understand this morning is that self-exaltation ultimately leads to disaster. Self-exaltation ultimately leads to disaster. Adonijah was now the oldest living son of David. And while a succession plan had not yet been put into place in Israel about who would become the next king, it's safe to say that Adonijah thought that he deserved that role as the oldest living son. Now, it's possible, as we're going to see later, that Adonijah knew very well that Solomon was to be the next king. And if so, Adonijah would be guilty of rebelling against the will of the father, his father, and ultimately the will of God as God had declared, we'll see this, that uh, Solomon would be the next king. But anyway, we look at it, Adonijah is seeking to exalt himself to the throne. Notice verse 5, I will be king. I will be king. So following his older brother Absalom's playbook, he surrounds himself with chariots and horsemen and 50 people who will go before him. And, and this is his entourage because every king is to have an entourage, apparently. He sought out Israel's power players, the kingmakers, Joab and Abiathar, and he gathered for him people for what was essentially a coronation ceremony. Interestingly, he did not invite Solomon. He didn't invite the prophet Nathan. He didn't invite the priest Zadok or Benaiah, one of David's warriors. And the fact that he did not invite Solomon or Nathan may infer that he knew. That he knew that it, God's hand was on Solomon to be the next king. So the stage is set. Verse 6 is interesting statement about David's lack of discipline in Adonijah's life. Look at verse 6 again. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus? And so, in other words, David had failed to discipline Adonijah as he grew up. And I think the author wants us to see that Adonijah had a sense of entitlement in his life. David didn't correct him. Adonijah had a sense of entitlement. I will be King, just a word on the need for discipline. Fathers, parents, it is an unloving thing to fail to discipline your children. It is an unloving thing to fail to confront sin in their lives and to confront their foolishness. Kids need redirection, but here's the truth. All of us need redirection at times in our lives, don't we? That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, the author makes it very clear that God disciplines his children. And he disciplines his children because he loves them and he wants them to share in his holiness. Apart from loving discipline, children will continue in foolishness. And the danger is that they live an entitled life, which frankly is so prevalent in our society today. And friends, let's remember that discipline is not just uh, telling kids what to take off, right? 
telling kids to stop doing this. It's also telling them what to put on. So it's instructing them in the way of righteousness. It's instructing them in the way that they should go according to God's will and according to God's plan. But too many parents would rather just play the role of a friend than an authority in their kids' lives. Hear this, be a friend, but don't give up your responsibility to discipline your children and to point them to Jesus. Well, the prophet Nathan gets word of everything that was going on with Adonijah. We don't know if he found out because that's what the word was on the street or because God, as the prophet, very clearly made it known to Nathan. But Nathan realized we have to do something here. He immediately goes to Bathsheba. Solomon's mother and informs her of what is going on and he instructs her to go to King David and to ask hey what what's what's up what's happening here and then he says as soon as you're leaving I'm going to come and I'm going to confirm every word that you said so that David knows exactly what is going on now one thing to note I want you to look at verse 13 Nathan is instructing Bathsheba, go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? This is also what Nathan will say to David in verse 17 as well. Now, because this is not explicit, in 2 Samuel, some wonder if Nathan and Bathsheba are being deceitful. Like they're trying to enact their own plan to make sure that Solomon gets on the throne. But friends, I'm confident that David had communicated that Solomon would be the heir. Remember when Solomon was born? We consider the special circumstances of Solomon's birth and we're told explicitly that God loved Solomon, even gave him a different name than Solomon. And he sent a message to David by the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and we might then assume that God's hand was on Solomon. But furthermore, what is unclear in 2 Samuel is clear in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6 through 10. Then he called for Solomon, David called for Solomon, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed too much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build for me a house, he shall be my son, and I shall be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, maybe that was a private conversation, but what was private there is very clearly public in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses four through seven, if you want to read that later. The only question is, when did these conversations happen? Is it possible that Adonijah didn't know that God had chosen Solomon? Is it possible? When he began to seek the throne, it's unclear. The Bible is not very clear. However, commentator, author Peter Leithart believes that Adonijah knew and suggested Adonijah wasn't just trying to fill a power vacuum. 
He was seeking to overthrow a prince. It was self-exaltation. Well, back to the narrative in 1 Kings. Let's pick up at verse 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he is not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and offered sacrifice and has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him saying, long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant and Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So Nathan executes this strategy with Bathsheba. Bathsheba lets, her, lets, lets uh, David know what's going on and of course Nathan confirms all of this as well. And, and by the way, Bathsheba says, look, if this is what it's gonna be like, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for Solomon. And then Nathan brings up this question, which kind of forces the king's hand. Did you do all this and not tell us about it? Is that what's taking place here? Well, this rouses the king to action. If we were to keep reading, he devises a plan which includes Solomon riding on his mule, his own mule, the royal mount, and a trumpet blast to pub publicly proclaim Solomon as the king. And all this happens while Adonijah is feasting with his supporters. But the party is interrupted when the trumpet sounds and the people wonder what's going on. It's then that the narrative tells us that Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, shows up and tells Adonijah what's going on, how Solomon has been named the king. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he rose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your house. So Solomon here concludes 
and conditions Adonijah's safety on him being a worthy man, on him being a compliant person. Everyone who had gathered around Adonijah flees. They go to their own homes. They don't know what's going on. They're scared. Adonijah is alone. Oh, let him, let him swear that he won't kill me. Be a worthy person. Be a compliant person. However, not long after David's death, Adonijah secretly makes a request to Bathsheba to talk to the king, Solomon, on his, on his behalf. And Solomon interprets this as a treasonous act and ultimately has Adonijah put to death. See, friends, self-exaltation never ends well. In the short term, it may lead to some benefits, but ultimately, it only leads to humiliation and to disaster. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew chapter 23. Peter and James connect exalting oneself to pride, stating that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Self-exaltation leads to disaster. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit obtains honor. Now look, not many of us in this room are trying to exalt ourselves to a position of king or exalt ourselves to a position of queen. That's not what we're about, but self-exaltation happens all the time and in so many different ways. Some are secretly or overtly maneuvering for positions of power or influence. Some are treating others poorly because they think they are better than others. Others are doing everything they can to ensure that their preferences, their opinions, and their desires are heard and enacted. And look, this can happen in interpersonal relationships, it can happen in the workplace, and yes, it can happen in churches. But Jesus says, be humble, be faithful, be a servant. Don't try to exalt yourself. In fact, entrust yourself to God who will raise up the humble. And that's what we see with Jesus, right? Who models servant leadership and he calls his followers to be like him. Jesus, God who took on flesh, humbled himself, did not exalt himself, humbled himself, became a servant, and died on the cross for our sins. But it didn't end there. He rose again, and what happened? God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. He is the Lord. He is the King. He's the king that we need. Friends, God opposes the proud. For those who remain self-sufficient and self-indulgent, the humiliation that will come will ultimately be seen as being separated from the grace and the love of God forever, cast into a fiery hell because of your rebellion against the one true and living God. But for those who will live humbly, for those who will recognize their sin, for those who will recognize their need for a savior, for those who will call out to Jesus for salvation... Exaltation results in forever the presence of God. Even if you don't experience much exaltation in this life right now. And even if on, in this life 
your road is difficult. The promise remains. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who recognize their spiritual brokenness will be lifted up by the great God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Second, living and leading well means walking in God's ways. Living and leading well means walking in God's way. Now, the beginning of chapter two records David's instructions to Solomon prior to David's death. We're gonna focus on the first part of instruction, verses one through four. Let's read those together. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If we were to skip down to verses 11 and 12, we read of David's death there. Now, my guess is that David telling his son to show himself a man doesn't sit too well in our culture today. Maybe doesn't even sit too well with some in this room right now. In a world that rejects God's design for leadership in the home and in the church, you might wonder, what is David actually telling Solomon here? What does he mean, show yourself a man? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean be a jerk. He doesn't mean exert your influence so that your way is always the way that is followed. That's not what he's saying. In fact, it's actually just the opposite. Solomon will show himself a man when he humbles himself and he submits to God's ways. And while David spoke at a specific time in redemptive history, we need to understand his words to say, walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, Follow God's ways. It's not that the Old Testament law doesn't have bearing on our lives because it certainly does. But friends, we are not under the law in the same way that they were under the law when David spoke these words. We are under grace. And it's the spirit of God that enables us to walk according to God's ways. According to, as James says, the law of liberty, which is about doing the word of God. Now, for the most perceptive in the room, you'll see the similarities between David's instructions to Solomon and Moses' instructions to Joshua in that transition of leadership. There, Moses tells Joshua to meditate on God's law and to be careful to do everything that's in it because this will lead to prosperous living. So David says, walk in God's way so you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, friends, this isn't prosperity in the sense of the prosperity gospel. This isn't about health and wealth and stuff. It's prosperity in the sense that we experience and we enjoy the spiritual blessings that are those who are in Christ, that are for those who are in Christ to the fullest. Follower, a professing follower of Jesus who is not living in righteousness, who is not walking with the Spirit, who is not walking in the ways of God, is not experiencing all that God has for that person. That man, that woman, that boy, that girl is not experiencing all that God has for that person. So let me encourage you, friends, as parents, 
as employees, as, as bosses, as church volunteers, as followers of Jesus, follow God's will and follow God's ways. This isn't just a word for kings. It's a word for all of us who want to experience and enjoy God's grace to the fullest. Finally, we need to remember that God's promises never fail. We need to remember that God's promises never fail. In verse four, David references the covenant that God made with him. Let's look at verse four one more time. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The promise made to David is that God would establish his throne and that one of his sons would rule forever in a forever kingdom. God's promise is unconditional, but the one who would rule forever must be worthy. He must pay close attention to walk before God in faithfulness with a wholehearted devotion. And while Solomon had a great start, he didn't finish well. And none of the other sons of David did well either. They all failed. All the sons, that is, until Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, conceived by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary. I want you to flip back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you will. 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23 includes this oracle of David, this prophecy that David wants us to know that God gave to him concerning the future, the future kingdom that God will bring about. Let's read those verses, one through seven. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure for he will not cause for will he not cause us prosper all my help and my desire but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken with the hand but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear as they are utterly consumed with fire friends jesus the son from the line of david who, verse three, rules justly over all the people and has lived in the fear of God so as to obey the will and the ways of God perfectly is this king. And the benefits of his rule are symbolically portrayed in verse four, right? King Jesus brings light in the darkness. He brings warmth to a cold world. He nurtures life. Why? Because he is life. He is the light of the world, and in him is refreshment for all. He, in him, we are revived. In him, we are renewed. God's promises never fail. 
And the promises of the kingdom are fulfilled in Jesus, the one who died for sinners and rose again. He reigns forever. He is the conquering king. And while we've seen the kingdom inaugurated in Jesus' coming, we await the consummation of his kingdom when he comes again. May we long for his coming. May we find joy in the expectation of his return. May we pray pray for and encourage ourselves with the second advent when he will make all things right. There's something about suffering. There's something about uncertainty that causes us to long for Jesus' return even more. Maybe some of you are in that same place. Longing for Jesus' return. Come, Jesus, come. And while his kingdom is glorious, as Dale Ralph Davis notes, his kingdom is exclusive. Those who reject King Jesus and fail to put their trust in him will be excluded from his kingdom. David speaks of these people here in verse six, calling them worthless, like thorns that should be thrown away. As we end this study, as we close out this year, we need to ask ourselves where we stand in the light of King Jesus and his righteous rule. Have you humbled yourself and put your trust in Jesus? Have you confessed your sin and cried out for forgiveness? Are you today seeking to live in righteousness, following his will and his ways? Are you believing the promises of God? Are you longing for the return of the true king? The only king? If not, today on this last day of 2023, will you call out to Jesus? Will you recognize your sin? Will you turn from your sin And will you ask God to forgive you? Will you put your hope in the crucified and risen Messiah? As we move to a time of invitation, if God is moving in your heart, and we pray that you would respond as the Spirit's leading you. We're here to connect with you. If you have a question about the gospel, you have a question about baptism, you have a question about church membership, if you just want someone to pray with you, our staff is here and we'd love to connect with you. You don't have to come up here. There's nothing that saves you about coming up front. You can speak with someone right next to you. The important thing is that you understand the gospel and you believe the gospel. Will you pray with me? (coughs) Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Mostly, we thank you that your promises endure forever. We thank you that Jesus has come that Jesus lived perfectly, that Jesus died a sinner's death, and that Jesus rose again on the third day. We understand that he is the first fruits of the resurrection and that those who are in Christ will follow after him. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the hope that is in Jesus. We pray your spirit would move even now in our lives and in this place. In his name we pray, amen. Church, would you stand and sing and respond as God leads?